Hi, my name is David Speed. And I'm Adam Brazier. And this is the Creative Rebels podcast. Featuring inspirational stories and practical advice from some of the most prolific and successful creators in the world. Adam and I have co-founded multiple creative businesses and turned our varied passions into our careers. There's never been a better time in history to make a career from being creative. So many people will tell you that you can't do it, but we're here to show you that you definitely can. Right, let's do a podcast. Welcome back, Rebels. Yep, new year, same us. Yep. New shiny intro. Welcome to episode two. Episode two of the Creative Rebels podcast, series two. And in this episode, we are talking to someone who does a lot of adventuring. You do quite a lot of adventuring, don't you? I suppose. Um, not in quite in the way that he does. He does it on a really large scale. But I think a lot of what we talk about in this episode is micro adventures, which is what I do a lot of. We will often go away for like little short mini weekends and just make the most of every bit of free time we have. It's like, for me, the idea of being sat at home on a Sunday or a Saturday watching TV is the worst thing ever. Like I have to be out there doing something, even if that's just finding an area in town I've not been to before and just saying, cool, let's go and walk around this for the next four hours and every junction we come to take a look both ways and think what looks the nicest let's go that way and you never know what you'll find I, I love just exploring the town and finding little gems that are hidden everywhere yeah there's definitely a lot of that but my kind of major takeaways from this episode are a lot more mindsetty. and I think even if like an adventure to you is uh, taking your dog around the park like this will actually be a really useful episode to anyone listening and one thing I really took away from this was the fact there's kind of two forms of happiness the form that's like the instant gratification those things that you're when you're in it you're just having a great time like I think in this episode we talk about having a cheese toasty and how great that is but then the second part's the one that when you really struggle through something actually those are quite often the fondest memories and I know that when we started our business those initial struggles were so bloody lovely and yeah but if you went back to us and was like hey David and Adam and Yona sat in a cold garage in South Norwood that you're having type two fun right now we'd be like we're having no fun zero Fuck fun off. this is awful <laughs> but it's looking back it's that retrospective view of of fun and looking back on a struggle can always bring back so much joy yeah so we know from the messages we get that a lot of you are kind of knee deep in those struggles right now and it's very easy for us to say but that's a beautiful place to be in and when you come out of that, you're going to appreciate what you have on the other side of it so much more. So if you're having a tough time, if things feel like they're really bloody grueling, um, just think about how rewarding it's going to be when you get through the other side of that and keep going, keep pushing forward. Yeah, it might feel really tough and really awful right now, but trust us, when you get out of that other side, it's so much better and it's so nice to look back on where you've come and it makes you proud. It's like you only get proud of something by push pushing yourself out of your comfort zone doing something that's hard and then looking back on that in the future and remember our little equation consistency plus equation open brackets plus learning and development close brackets equals success um we've made it more complicated but basically <laughs> consistency if you're consistently making your work and consistently getting better and you just keep going it's like that's when that's when the joy will happen because you've only we, we talked about this this is a long long while back now but we talked about this in the episode with Torre and he, he said something in that episode that's really stuck with me and he was like you you've only failed when you stop yeah. you can go completely out of business you can use lose all of your money you can be like just at rock bottom but you've only failed if you stop 
because you can then start up and like and so many of those success stories are the people that hit rock bottom and it's from there that they've built and it it's then so much more beautiful isn't it when you've like built it from scratch like it's it's come from nothing and now it's this amazing thing. yeah just to be able to look and say like i built this like my blood sweat and tears went into this like that's amazing yeah and another thing that this episode made me reflect on is some of the messages that we've been getting from our community and realizing that a lot of you are like just in in nine to fives and you're perfectly happy there which is cool and you're not looking to like do your own thing or start your own business or anything like that a lot of you guys are but some of you aren't and just from the messages that we've been getting people have been saying like i've rediscovered this creative side of myself and i think that's like with the mini adventures it's like it's getting off your ass it's like waking up in the morning and being like i could go and do this thing that i always do or i could go for a walk and it's the same of like oh i could do a painting or i could like just rediscovering that thing that you loved as a kid and doing it again now yeah so many people are in jobs where they'll get up in the morning go to work get home be exhausted and too tired to do anything go to bed wake up the next day and just repeat just cycle and do the same thing over and over again and wonder why they're not happy it's because they're not making time to be creative to do that thing that they love and it's so important to carve that out and we talk about that a lot in this episode about how setting that time aside to actually go and enjoy yourself to go and have an adventure to be creative to do that thing that you love it's so important because it'll only make you a happier person yeah you know we don't uh we don't really talk much on this show about mental health but I am convinced, and I mean, I guess I'm going to have to get some stats and some figures and some like official clever doctory people to back me up on this, but I am convinced that creativity is so good for your mental health. And I think that when I was in a dark place, I think that it was being creative that got me out of that that dip. Yeah, so if you know anyone who is in a bit of a dip at the moment, maybe try and suggest ways that they can get back into that yep that's a theory that i'm working on another thing i'm working on is liking any post on instagram that uses the hashtag creative rebels so this year we're using the hashtag creative rebels on instagram to grow a community to get you guys to meet each other to help each other out and it's also a way for us to just see what you're doing what projects you're started what you're currently working on and just watching everyone grow together and just by searching that hashtag creative rebels it's so easy to go through and see everyone like it's a really nice platform Yep, we love it. And uh, throughout the year, we're going to be giving away some stuff. We're going to be doing some uh, live calls for people that need them and sort of, yeah, just meeting and interacting with you guys as much as we can. So, um, yes, yes, this week's guest is Alistair Humphreys, who is an adventurer. He's also a motivational speaker, an author and a number one podcaster. Alistair has cycled around the world. It took him four years. And how, how far did he cover? I think it was 46,000 miles. 46,000 miles. A on long a bike. fucking way. <laughs> uh, he's also rode across the Atlantic Ocean and he's busked his way around Spain uh, with no musical talent and no wallet no backup plan and he's just released an amazing new book called the doorstep mile this is one of our favorite interviews and we realized recording this that you don't need to climb mount everest to have an adventurous mindset you can apply it into all of the things that you're doing uh, to become basically successful at anything that you do in this episode we talk about adventures bad violin playing and being vulnerable if you are willing to express your weakness and express your vulnerabilities, then they are no longer weaknesses or vulnerabilities, they become your strengths.
Hi, Alistair. Hello. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Um, can you tell me about learning to play the violin? Yeah. <laughs> um, it's really hard, would be my... <laughs> it's much harder than I thought. Um, I spent seven months learning the violin, thinking that after that time I'd be really good and I could go and busk and earn loads of money. But actually, after seven months, I was absolutely terrible. Um, and that was a problem because the reason I decided to learn the violin was because I wanted to retrace the route of a book from the 1930s, a guy called Laurie Lee, who walked across Spain then. And I wanted to follow his route, playing the violin to earn the money I needed. So my plan was to go with no money, no credit card, and walk through Spain only playing the violin, which I thought sounded quite an exciting idea. It also, to me, sounded terrifying because performing music in public's like, te- well, very scary for me, like dancing or singing or yeah. anything mm. like having to stand up in public and play the violin I just think is mortifyingly embarrassing but then if you toss into the mix not having any money and therefore having to do it if you're going to eat today that started to feel to me like all the ingredients of a proper self-imposed scary adventure so you had you had no other option no credit card no nothing to bail you out no I was so that was my original plan. No money, I'll go and play the violin, I'll be fine. <laughs> As it got near to departure day, I was so bad um, that I'd nearly chickened out and thought maybe I should take a bit of cash because I really am terrible. But I thought, if, you, if this is going to have any power, I have to do it properly. If you take your wallet, then you're just playing the violin for fun. You're just playing a game. If you've got no wallet, and the only way you're going to eat this week is by playing your violin, it puts some skin in the game. It becomes serious then. And so the first time I played was just absolutely terrifying. Because another thing I'd done to make it harder was I deliberately never pra- never busked before I went. So I never went to my local town in England and stood in the street just to get that feeling. I wanted to have full immersion on day one in Spain. Lunatic. Oh, that's what I felt. <laughs> when I sat, when I sat on the violin that morning, I was like sweat streaming down me. I was just so scared. And that's not because of the heat. Not the heat. It was just pure... <laughs> fear I was really frightened my heart was thumping I was sweating I was so embarrassed I thought no one's going to give me any money that I'll get told off the police will come I'm going to fail and this was my big adventure project I'm going to fail on day one I felt awful I really really hated that first day what happened that first day well it was pretty disastrous, and it? I think you, you have to try and put some of my violin playing, I think, into this podcast, because <laughs> people always assume you're just being modest when you say you're bad, but I was, well, I was rubbish. It was a tw- I could play five songs, about 20 seconds each, screeching away, and I'd just loop through these five songs, round and round and round, and people just walk past, nearly everyone just walks past and ignore you. Some people just walk, look at me and sort of wrinkle their face up or look like, wick. I mean, I don't look Spanish at all. So be like, <laughs> that guy's clearly like a tourist. What, what is he doing with the violin? Um, and just being ignored and blanked and laughed at for hours was... Did you make any money? Uh, I got to the point when I was so... Cl- I just wanted to give up and go home, but I kind of back to myself I like doing things when you're just so fully committed that there's nothing else to do so I was standing in that town in Spain with no money and a month ahead of me I had nothing to the only thing I could do was just keep on playing until something happened and eventually after a couple of hours an old man gave me a coin and that was 
just an amazing sort of breakthrough moment of thinking, mm. whoa, I've done it. I'm now a professional musician. <laughs> and, if, and, and I think that's always the key thing. So if, you were, if you can earn one coin, you know you can earn two. Yeah. But until when you're on zero and you have no idea if you can get one, it's terrifying. And what I loved is the notion of... So I had another rule to myself, which was every day I had to spend all of the money I earned. So that meant that wow. the next day I'd be back to zero again yeah. and back to being hungry and scared again. So I was conscious every day of, right... First thing I need to do is earn a loaf of bread. I'm hungry. If I want to eat today, I need to earn 50 cents to get a loaf of bread. And I quite like that. It's like, if I earn 50 cents today and a loaf of bread, the day is pretty much a success. Anything on that is a bonus. And then on top of that, I had to walk from town to town to get to Madrid. And so you walked across the whole of Spain? Northwestern Spain. So I went from the northwest corner, a town called Vigo, uh, 500 miles cross-country to uh, Madrid. And over you're, a month. you're sat in front of us today, so you didn't starve, you made it. I didn't starve, I made it. It's quite a long walk, but I've done longer walks in my life, and I obviously I couldn't afford a hotel ever, so I camped out for a month and just washed in rivers, but I've done that for a lot longer than that. So that none of that's really a big deal for me. The big deal was the daily violin playing, and to my amazement, it was a complete triumph. I earned in a month um, 120 euros which is riches beyond compare. No man needs more than 120 euros in a month. I just couldn't believe it. So I was just decadent. It was magical. <laughs> how, do, how do you stretch that? How do you stretch that money? Because I would go and spend, I'd probably go and buy a sandwich, which would be a very foolish way of spending my, my money. How did you survive on such a small amount of money every day? Um, well, I'd started by buying a bag of rice because that's, that can do you for quite a few days. Mm. And at night, I had I had a pan so I could cook. I didn't have a camping stove. I couldn't afford camping gas. So at night, I'd just light a fire and cook on the fire. So I'd make rice and chuck in some tomatoes or carrots or something. Um, the out-of-date shelf in the greengrocers is quite good for stuff you can chuck into a stew. And then <laughs> um, bread and bananas to fill me up. Um, I do have history of this, though, because I spent four years cycling around the world basically on a diet of banana sandwiches and instant noodles. So I've got quite used to living cheap for a long time. It's, I spent in four years cycling around the world, I spent £7,000. So there are cheap ways to have adventures if you're willing to live like a tramp. And so <laughs> you you definitely, uh, there was no theft at any point um, theft was definitely on my um, plans, uh, definitely, because I was, before I went, I thought, no one is going to give me any money. The only way I'm going to get food is by nicking pizza crusts off cafe tables and hopefully not resorting to having to steal from the tip tray, yeah. but you never know. But I definitely, in my head, was thinking, right, I'm going to have to just do a bit of dumpster diving, nick some pizzas, steal some carrots from the fields. I really did think I'd have to do that. But to my amazement, I did it all legally. I did steal one carrot just because I was walking through this huge carrot field and they looked really nice. <laughs> and I thought, oh, he's got, this guy's got a lot yeah. of carrots. So I nicked one and, it was really, and it's lovely to eat a fresh <laughs> carrot. But that was, that was the only theft I did. <laughs> um, so you mentioned there that you, uh, that you cycled around the world four years and you nearly didn't. You were almost a science teacher. I was almost, yeah, Mr. Humphreys, the science teacher. Uh, that's, I was... Uh, went to university and I was training to be a teacher and I would have liked to be a teacher being a teacher's cool and I, I think I'd have been a good teacher so I was all set for that and I really liked the idea of being a head teacher and really having an impact on kids 
But I also thought, man, if I start being a teacher now when I'm 24, that's 40 odd years of being a teacher. There's probably time to do something else first. So I thought before I become a teacher, I'll go and have an adventure, a big adventure for all the reasons young people have always wanted to have adventures. I'll go get it out of my system and then I'll come back and settle down. The trouble is if you go do a massive adventure, sometimes it just gives you the taste for more massive adventures. And I spent four years cycling through 60 countries. And one of the main things that taught me was how little of the world I'd seen in those four years in those 60 countries. And it made me just want more. Wow, that's incredible. So you saw so much of the world, probably more than I've ever seen. And you, that made you realise how little you'd seen. Every day you cycle down, you're cycling down the road and you see a road go off to the left and you don't take it. And you yeah. see a road go off to the right. Yeah. And you think every one of these roads would change my life forever. But you don't take it, you take that one which is a great choice. You can't take every road. That's an important thing that I've eventually started to learn, not to beat myself up. You can't take them all. But I'm very aware that every road you take leaves a lot unseen. It's amazing that we, um, obviously on a much smaller scale, but just in terms of London, like I've lived here for about nine years now, and me and my girlfriend at the weekends will quite often just go for walks. We'll pick an area we've never been to before, just walk, and basically every junction we get to, we'll just look left and right, which looks the nicest, and then just go down that and just keep going. So I feel like we've explored a lot of London and we're discussing the other week, like how much do you reckon we've actually seen? And I was like, maybe like 10% or something. But I reckon most people are on like one or two because they don't, just don't explore even where they actually live. Like they're happy to just sit at home and kind of watch TV or just go to the same places again and again and yeah. again. Whereas it's amazing how much you'll find by just walking down streets and like looking for stuff. Like I remember seeing a, um, there's this picture on Instagram, it was around uh, when all the wisteria was out and it was like, London was a really be beautiful place in, in like, around the spring. And um, I'd seen this picture online and I was like, that's really beautiful. Like I'd love to go and try and find that. And there was no kind of, I didn't tell you where it was. Like we knew roughly the area it was in. So just walked around for like, maybe like three hours, just like exploring the streets, finding lots of like interesting little places. Uh, and then we were just about to go home and we were heading towards the station and there's this little like side road to the left that was like nothing particularly interesting down there. It looked a bit kind of, just a bit run down. Uh, but I was like, oh, well, we've walked down that road earlier. Let's just like have a little loop down this side road. We never know what's down there. And we went down there, turned the corner and this building that we've been yeah. looking for was just there. Like a completely unassuming road. We'd found this thing we've been looking for and if we'd have just gone the easy route, gone the route that everyone else had gone, We'd never have discovered that. I think that's what is nice about just exploring. Yeah, and also it gives a different perspective on what exploration is, doesn't it? Yeah. There's a guy who walks across America, which is a pretty cool, epic thing to do. And he's now, though, walking every street in New York. His website's I'm Just Walking, yeah. without the G. And it's about 8,000 miles of streets. That's years and years and years of travel to see every street in your city. Um, and you could do the same and some guy got in touch with me he lives in some really small random little town in the north of England and he's one he's a Strava you know that cycling yeah. app where people get really obsessed about doing their mileage and doing their quotas and he's yeah. one day he went out and was like oh, I can't be bothered to do this he thought I know he'd read in one of my books that I'm going to cycle every street of my town some small little random town he did 60 miles every street of his little town that he lived in all his life and like you, saw all sorts of things he'd never seen before. Yeah. It's 
I think, yeah, if you're listening to this, go out there and explore mm. even like your own town. But it also suggests that you don't need to go all the way around the world to have an adventure, do you? you exactly. Stepping out your front door is a dangerous business, Frodo. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Lord of Rings, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so when you're, when you're 24, I think most people, when they think, oh, I'm going to go on a little adventure, they'll maybe go to Bali for six months and then, and then they come back. What made you decide I'm in this for four years or did it just develop? It started off as six months and then just went further and further. So by this time, I got quite into um, physical challenges. So I quite liked running around the hills and doing stuff that was hard. I found that an interesting um, experiment on myself, that side of life. I'd also started to discover that cycling was a great way to see places. It's not too fast. It's not too slow. It's painful, but not too painful. It's, um, you can carry quite a lot of stuff, but you're also being quite minimal. So it just, for me, and this continues to this day, still ticks the boxes for the best way to see a place. Mm -hmm. So I knew I wanted to do something quite hard and I knew I wanted to go by bike. So I got a map on my wall in my student room and I thought, I'd love to cycle to India. That'd be amazing. So I put it up and I started putting pins up, like cool places, oh, Taj Mahal and stuff. And then I thought, look, if you've gone from England to India, we might as well keep going to Australia. It's not that much, you're kind of yeah, halfway, yeah, yeah. why stop? And then it just carried on from that into the idea of, well, if I get to Australia, I might as well, rather than coming all the way home this way, I might as well go carry on the way I'm going. So it just escalated into, well, I'll try and see if I could cycle around the world. But... There wasn't much fanfare. I didn't have sponsors or anything like that. It was just me going to do something that felt important and meaningful to me. And my, when I set off, I didn't actually think I was going to get all the way around the world. I just thought, I'll go till I'm knackered or I've had enough and then I'll come home and do something different. Uh, but I didn't. I kept going. I'm quite stubborn. <laughs> I suppose it's like when you said, now I've got one coin, that means I can get more coins. It's like, now I've done one day, I can do another day. And then now I've done one country, I can do another country. And it just... Yeah, people often come up to me at the end of talks and things and they want to share their stories of bike trips and things they've done. And they always say, I guess just sort of being modest, they always go, well, it's nothing like what you did, but I once... And then they tell me their story, which is often, I don't know, a week cycling or a couple of weeks or something. And I always say to them, what you've done is exactly the same as what I did. But I just repeated the process yeah. a stupid yeah, number yeah. of times. It just didn't stop. Yeah, if you can cycle all day, put up your tent and cycle the next day, you have everything you need to cycle around the world. You're fit enough, skillful enough, capable enough. You have everything you need to cycle around the world if you can cycle for a weekend. And to be honest, you've kind of got most of the experiences done already. You'll have learned to be that you're going to be a bit tired, a bit self-sufficient, a bit, but the freedom. You've got the, all the sensations of cycling around the world squashed into a weekend. The thing that then you need in order to persevere for 1,500 days is all in your head, really. You've got, it's nothing to do with the skills anymore. It's just inside your head. Why do you think you've developed that kind of resilience to not needing much? Um, I think there's a couple of aspects to that question. The, the not needing much thing has just come from experience of learning from the trips I've done that the times, often the times in my life when I'm happiest are just when I'm on a hill with a tent and a pan of pot noodle or instant noodles. And boy, you know, if you've hiked up a hill and put your tent up and the sun's setting, that pot noodle tastes better than any fancy yeah. meal in London by a mile. And we all kind of 
agree on that, I think. Yeah. I've just done it enough to really believe that and to, and to really relish that as a sort of core part of my life. And then the resilience side, I think one of the reasons I wanted to try and do a big trip was because I had a bit of a chip on my shoulder. Um, I'd, always, I'd done fine at everything in life, but I wasn't that good at anything. I wasn't that interesting or that clever or that cool or that fast. <laughs> I was just normal at everything. It's boring being normal. So I just kind of wanted to prove myself a bit to the world and prove myself to myself. To and yourself. I think, yeah. And it was interesting, actually, the cycling around the world went through some very noticeable phases. The first year, when I was really quite miserable, thinking, oh, this is so hard. Oh, God, I miss my friends. This is horrible. I was really suffering. That was very much motivated by, I can't quit because I've got to prove myself to other people. So I cycled from England to, I ended up cycling to South Africa and Australia. But I cycled to South Africa, very much motivated by that. The second year, which is cycling from Patagonia up to, through South America to Colombia, was much more driven by, I want, I want to prove this to myself, prove I can keep going, prove I can keep persevering. So in the beginning, would it, would it have been like, if I throw in the towel now, then to everyone else, I will look like a failure? Was yeah. that what you were thinking? Yeah, and they'll think, oh... Because I've, I've said I'm going to do this. Exactly, and they'll say, oh, I told you so, or they'll think, oh, I knew he was a wimp, and yeah... I mean, the reality, of course, is most people don't care and they're busy doing their own lives and they won't even remember this guy was a bit of a loser at school anyway. So, (laughs) but I was really driven by that that kid from the fifth form. Yeah, I'm going to prove it to him. Uh, And geez, I still spend far too much time Googling for that kid in the fifth form. (laughs) Um, Yeah, that has a big impact on your life. But I was very much motivated by that. What will other people think? And of course, people don't think anything because everyone's doing their own life, stuck in their own ego, which is something that I really had to remember when I was playing the violin in Spain. It's called spotlight syndrome. You think everyone's looking at you. You think, oh, my shirt doesn't match my hair today. I'm so embarrassed. No one notices. No one cares. And that's a nice thing to realise. I think as well on that point, there's the notion of you, what you think about yourself as someone who's maybe like now listened to lots of violin to try and learn things. You think you're really awful, although by the sounds of it, you were quite awful. But to other people who've never done it, actually, that might be quite good. I think a lot of artists have that problem where they look at someone who's a lot further down the line and think, well, well, I'm not as good as that. But then if you show it to someone who's, who can't draw at all, they're like, you're amazing. And it's realising that actually you are really good. Mm. It's much more important, isn't it, to measure your trajectory, measure the direction you're going rather than the position you're in right now. Much more, much more useful to think, oh, look, I'm better than I was last week and I'm if I keep going the next week I'll be this much better rather than just going oh Da Vinci was much better at painting than me yeah. therefore I quit yeah what's the point yeah. <laughs> you, drive, you drive yourself mad it's it's one yeah. thing that I say to to younger tattoo artists is are you getting clients yeah I am well that means someone likes your work enough to have it on their skin for the rest of their lives so you're doing something right you're just not at all of these artists that you follow on your Instagram feed that you see every day that have been tattooing for 20 years that are incredible, but you're good enough for someone to look, to want your art permanently, so keep going. Yes, exactly. It's weird how there's some aspects of life, like, I don't know, let's say football. You look at the professional footballers and you just understand, oh, they've practiced all day, every day for 15 years. They're, now they're really good. But other things like art or writing books or making podcasts, we don't, think like that we just think i'm rubbish therefore i stop don't we rather than just getting on with it and getting better next time 
Yeah. yeah, I mean, hopefully if anyone's taken anything from this podcast, it's be relentless and just keep going. And that everyone's rubbish at first. Yeah. yeah. Like, <laughs> literally everyone is. Like, everyone starts from zero followers. Yeah. Everyone starts from exactly the same position. It's just putting in the hard work to get there. And like, it's like if, as long as you're physically able to do it, you can do it. Yeah, we do. Um, we've done quite a few talks around different universities recently. And one of our slides is don't compare your chapter one to someone else's chapter 20. And we show my chapter one of my very early paintings that are, let's be honest, rubbish. And then we show my chapter 20, which is where I'm at now. And it, it gets an audible gasp every yeah, time, yeah. isn't it, when the, when the chapter 20 goes up. Um, and it's just, I think that the reason that we put, put that in there is because too many people have this belief of like of being gifted or like like it's Especially a magical art, thing. Art yeah. Yeah. And no one th they think, oh, well, you must have had an, a natural um, sort of uh, propensity towards art. Just not true. I mean, it's there in black and white. These are, it's, I've documented here was, here was where I was starting. Here's where I am now. And you can see that's just time practice and relentless uh, kind of passion and, and which progresses into where I'm at today. Eventually, you can hopefully start to convince yourself that you are an artist. So I went from being always um, rubbish at sport and stuff to now having run quite fast marathons and cycle long distances and cross deserts and things just through relentlessly doing that and eventually getting to a point where I finally now think, oh, I am quite good at this sort of stuff yeah. now. But it takes you so long before you actually accept, oh, yeah, I am, I'm all right at this now. I think school beats a lot of that out of people as well, doesn't oh. it? Because it's like, yeah. if you're not the sporty kid at school, you're just like, well, yeah. I'm not good at Forever. sport. So, yeah, so there's no point in me even trying. It's such a broken, stupid, pointless system we have. We have a school system that was invented for 19th century industrial revolution, now in a world where everyone's just freelancers and hipsters. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. I think uh, one thing, like researching you, is realising how awesome your back garden is. Right. <laughs> My shed. Um, and your adventure garden. Yeah. I, I love... Um, just nowadays trying to find small little things close to home. So um, going all the way around the world, one of the benefits was that was finally realising that the place that I'd left was pretty cool. I think like a lot of young people, I just thought home was boring and Britain was rubbish and that adventure meant going to Patagonia or yeah. Mongolia and just trying to run away from the w at home as much as possible. Going a long, long way away, like it's like stepping back from a painting, you get a different perspective on it and think, oh, actually, I'm pretty lucky where I am. So my, my adventure project for this year that I've been enjoying is so ridiculously small, which is just to climb a tree once a month. It's the same tree I go to every month and I set up my camera. There's a fence post so I can set up my camera and tripod in exactly the same place. And I take one picture. I go climb this tree, take the picture on the zapper thingy and I sit there, have a cup of tea up the tree and just look around for 10 minutes and you see how the woods changed over the course of the year. And that's taught me so much. You know, I always used to think November was a rubbish month. I've always thought November's rubbish, even though it's my birthday. I've always thought it's a rubbish month. I'd noticed in the woods, it's actually one of the most beautiful months mm. in the woods. And I didn't realise that even at my age. Um, and so I sit in my tree and I think back to what I've done in the last month. I think a bit till the next month while I'm here and I come back down the tree go back to my shed that I work in and get back on with the emails. And um, I really enjoy that, trying to fit adventure and nature and I guess a bit of stillness into the busyness of trying to make a 
career out of all this as well. Yeah. And that's, that's an alarm that, that goes off when you're in the middle of your emails and you're just like, right, time to go and climb a tree. Yeah, that's, it's a calendar, Google calendar I use, which is normally sending me boring things like, oh, go to London for some stupid podcast recording. Like, oh, <laughs> Thanks, mate. <laughs> yeah. Or do, on, do your taxes. Oh, man, life's so boring with my Google calendar. And once a month, the first Tuesday of the month, it goes ding and it's green. It says climb a tree. Like, oh, yes, I will. We should have recorded this up a tree then, now, yeah. so we'll be having yeah. more fun. Well, if anyone listening to this doesn't know that it's not up a tree, so... We are yes. up a tree, currently. First, first podcast from a tree house, yeah. this is amazing. Um, so when you finally did come back from your four-year jaunt around the world, um, sorry, that's really... really <laughs> jaunt? <laughs> jaunt? <laughs> jaunt. <laughs> but when you did come back, what then stopped you from actually going and getting a proper job? Um, I'd imagine was there pressure from friends and family of okay, you've, you've had your fun time now and now it's time to get into the real world. Um, there was pressure mostly from my bank manager. Yeah. Um, so I spent my entire worldly wealth cycling around the world, which was £7,000, which is pretty cheap for um, four years of adventure. But when I came home, I had £300 left of, in the entire world. So that prompted me to get on and start earning some cash straight away. But I really... It was really torn. There were two options that seemed equally valid to me. One was to just take the wonderful, fortunate experiences I'd had of four years and put them in my head, make use of them, but then just go on and get a teaching job. And you know, what a great teacher to have. The amount of red herrings you could get out of your teacher <laughs> with that um, would be fantastic. And then the other option was thinking, I've seen 60 countries what about the other 140? Maybe I should go and do some of that. So I was really quite torn. But my first thought was, well, I should just get a job because that's just the normal thing to do. So I did. I, I became a teacher for a year and I really enjoyed it um, because I just assumed that was the sensible thing to do. What were you teaching? I was teaching. I was actually, it was a bit of a last minute. It wasn't really what I'd trained to do, but I was just kind of helping out with the um, dyslexic kids. So I was like mm -hmm. a teacher without portfolio it was quite cool I just roved around helping kids who needed a bit of a help yeah um and just trying to give people a kick up the arse to do something I really enjoyed it but it's something was kind of gnawing in me which is man there's still a lot of adventure and there's still a lot of years of being a teacher and I wonder if I could maybe earn some money out of adventure wouldn't that be cool like write a book do a talk sell some magazine articles, stuff like that. So it just felt like there was a bit of unfinished business and I felt like I'd, in many ways, done the hard work. I'd got my foot in the door of adventure. I had something now that was good on a CV that offered a bit of credibility mm. and there seemed like a lot of stuff I still wanted to go and try and do. So Almost like the, the life coach that has, that's 24 years old and has no life experience. You, you've kind of felt like you'd earned, I guess, the the right now to call yourself an adventurer because you'd done something that most people have not done. Most people have not cycled around the world. Yeah, and it had put me in a position now where I could start to do talks that people were interested in. I'd, so I, I used my teaching, I suppose, by for quite a few years then I just gave talks in schools, like hundreds of schools. I'd go and give talks and I loved that because you turn up at a school, you do the good bit of teaching, which is inspiring, encouraging, sowing seeds of crazy ideas and then turn around and walk out the door before you have to do any paperwork <laughs> or do breakdown duty. So I loved that. It was like the good bits of teaching. And I did that for quite a few years, and that became the 
basically how I paid for my life for the next few years. Uh, it's the same for me. I was uh, training to be a primary school teacher and so many of the same frustrations that you had. And I, I feel like now with the podcast, I'm helping so many more people than I was ever able to within that system that kind of does handcuff you in many ways. Um, so yeah, I can, I can totally relate to that. Um, as you, as you said, kind of you uh, had sort of stage fright going on with, um, with the violin. Were you the same when you started speaking? Because that's still in front of a, a group of people. Yeah, people think of speaking as being one of the great phobias, don't they? Mm. Um, I think training to be a teacher is helpful for so many things. And if you can get 30 kids to listen to what you're saying and you're talking about something boring like Newton's third law or something, if you can make kids listen to that, then you're in a good position to be a good speaker. And a so, TEDx is nothing after yeah. you've done like Yeah, because yeah. the thing about doing a TEDx is that even if you do the worst talk in the world, everyone will sit there politely and they'll clap at the end. Yeah. Whereas if you talk, if you're boring kids, after 10 minutes, they're just practicing Newton's third law by chucking stuff around the room. So <laughs> it's, um, yeah, if you can do, if you can be interesting to kids. And by practicing, I did, I've done well over a thousand talks to kids about adventures and you quickly learn ah this story's good this story's boring they're yeah. chucking stuff around so you start yeah. to learn through practicing and so by the time I'd done a thousand talks to kids the thought then standing up to a TEDx audience wasn't that scary for two reasons one because they're polite but also I knew what I'm an expert at this because I'm talking about myself and two I've done this a thousand times so I know I'm pretty good at it now and therefore as long as I tailor it for the audience, I should be fine. So I've got to the point now where if I have to do a talk, I do get a bit nervous before I start, but it kind of feels like my day job. It's not really a big deal. Nothing like standing up and playing the violin. What's your advice for someone who is going to do a talk? Like, what would you say to them to help get through that fear or anything you can do to keep the audience's attention? What makes a good talk? Um, I think you need to... Um, Remember why you've been asked to do the talk. So presumably you are some sort of expert. So you have to put aside your uh, inner modesty and think, what do I know that these people don't know? And how can I get it out of my head into their head in an interesting way? And that comes down to your personality, whether it's going to be through being funny or just being brief and to the point. Um, I don't think anyone has come out of a talk thinking, oh, I wish that had been longer. So <laughs> I think pretty much making your talk nice and short. And and please don't just put up slides and talk at the slides. The amount of people who stand and just turn and look at the slides and read everything off there is really boring. Just think about what's boring when you attend a talk and don't do that yourself, I think. Great. Yeah, I, I think that that advice I've been giving to a lot of people recently is look at how you consume things and then try and replicate what you enjoy. Because it is especially doing these uni talks, it's I'm talking about it a lot at the moment because it's so fresh in my mind, but talking to these kids who are like, Oh, how do I how do I grow an audience? And then you look at their content and you just have to go like what like if you were consuming your own content, would you be bored by it? And like, if the answer is yes, then make, make the kind of shit that you like to follow that you enjoy. Yeah. It's yeah. Find good stuff, copy it, do it a bit better, put your own little slant on it, repeat that for 10 years 
and then tell the world what you're doing. See, that's the kicker, isn't it? Yeah, that's that's what people don't want to do. They don't want to do the repeat, the 10 years thing. So I did a thousand talks before I started doing ones that paid a decent amount of money or went on the internet or anything like that. Uh, I cycled around the world for four years, 46,000 miles before um, anyone cared at all. So you have to ask yourself, am I doing this thing because I love this thing or am I doing this thing because I want loads of followers? And I think if it's the latter, then you're probably, well, firstly, you won't succeed in the long run. But also, secondly, you're probably a bit of a douche. (laughs) You've got to find something that you just excites you and that you would. So I have a rule with expeditions because I started doing some expeditions that were quite potentially quite dangerous. But at the same time, I was trying to make my career out of them and trying to grow an audience and doing dumb, dangerous stuff is a great way of growing an audience. (laughs) So I specifically one instant when I nearly killed myself rafting down a waterfall in Iceland and the only I nearly didn't do it because it was so scary and the thing that tipped me over was thinking this will look awesome on YouTube and I thought okay I'm going to go and I did it I paddled down I nearly died it was a stupid decision I realised I'd forgotten to turn on the camera (laughs) but that has taught me the lesson that has come from that which I apply to everything I do now is would I do this if nobody ever found out and if the answer is no, that means I'm only doing it for public approval, then I don't do it. I go do something else. What a great rule. I'm stealing that. Yeah, it's a great one. Would I do this if nobody ever found out? So, for example, this podcast conversation I'm enjoying with you guys because I'm learning. And if you tell me that you'd forgotten to record it, I think, oh, well, it was an interesting chat for an hour. So it ticks that box in my mind. Oh, it's definitely recording. <laughs> yeah, it says looking nervously. <laughs> yeah. So you've done all these things. You've you've rowed across the Atlantic. You've cycled around the world, um, and we have kind of touched on it. But there's a lot of unpleasantness that goes into it. But you're always so upbeat. Like whenever I hear you talk about adventures, you're positive, happy, and um, fulfilled. How do you? How do you flip that on its head, the misery that goes into... Because there must be... I mean, I've heard you talk about having boils on your bum. Like, I mean, there must be significant amounts of misery that go into this. Yeah, if there's not misery... If you're not miserable, then you're not on an expedition. You're on holiday. So you need to up the game until you become miserable, scared, cold, wet and hungry. And then you think, yes, this is now an expedition or an adventure, not a holiday. So, yeah, my trips are based generally around the premise of being as miserable as possible for as long as possible and seeing whether I can grip that out. And if I do, I come home with this sense of satisfaction that I've proved whatever I'm trying to prove to whoever I'm trying to prove it, and I feel satisfied from that. And then the joyful thing about doing stuff that's really hard is that time heals the misery, and eventually you can look back and laugh at things and think, ah, those boils on my bottom, those were the best days of my life, (laughs) mid-Atlantic Ocean. Um, so yeah, there's, there's, there's an idea called type one and type two fun. Type one fun is doing stuff that's just fun, like eating a cheese toasty. That's nice. It's fun. You smile when you're eating cheese toasties. Type two fun is running marathons, painting massive murals in the pouring rain, crossing oceans, suffering. But in time, when time passes and you look back on your life, it's the type two fun stuff that makes you feel good about yourself. So I think we all need a bit of type two fun in our lives. And I think it's also a good way of growing an audience, getting some type two fun into what you're doing, like some struggle and some effort. 
So if you're away and you're having lots of fun, do you think, oh shit, I better put myself in an awkward situation? You do. <laughs> when I was cycling around the world, I was so hard on myself. I was so, I look back on my younger self with real pity. I was so hard on myself. Because if ever I was happy, like, ooh, cycling through Bolivia, eating pineapples, this is lovely. I'd be thinking, well, it's not meant to be lovely. It's meant to be hard. If it was lovely, everyone would be cycling through Bolivia. Therefore, I'd better see if I can ride 150 miles today because I cycle till I collapse and start crying. Oh, yeah, now that feels like an adventure again. So I was really conscious that for me, the adventures I wanted to do, I wanted them to be really hard. I wanted them to be on the brink of what was possible for me to do. Not what other people could do, but what was possible for me. And I wanted to be exploring that limit of what I was possible, what was possible. And if I was just comfort, comfortable and having fun, then that didn't really help that slightly messed up viewpoint, I think. But it's, uh, <laughs> I think it helps get good expeditions. I think it's really inspiring. I mean, I think of people like David Goggins, who that's, that's their whole thing is, is doing, doing the hard stuff. Um, but what would you say to, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this, myself included, have no desire to um, punish themselves as relentlessly as, as you have. Um, how can they still sample that miserable world, but still have fun at the same time? <laughs> but I, think it, I think it steps over into just setting high standards and setting high expectations so when I write books for example it's quite hard, it's kind of hard to compare I suppose because it seems such a solitary world but I am so hard on myself with the final stage of a book like before you send it to a publisher and say this is done I've pushed myself so hard till I get that point you know, I read through the book a thousand times till I hate the thing just in case there's one comma that I've missed so I'm push and push and push and push and I'm quite sure you guys do that with the art that you do it's that setting a really high standard demanding a lot of yourself and knowing that although it's hard and miserable you'll regret it if you don't and you'll be proud of yourself if you do and that's worth a late night or two do you call yourself a perfectionist I try to in some ways I am so I'm really obsessive with my but with the things I care about, so my books and my expedition, I try to make them as best as I possibly can. I've learned now to not say I'm trying to make them better than everyone else's. Like the competing versus the rest of the world is just a recipe for disappointment. So I've yeah. eventually taught myself to just be playing my own game. So I try and make everything as perfect as I can. However, I'm also really keen on the notion of good is better than not done at all. So I tend to start things in a very slapdash way. So the book that I've just finished, I started that as a very hasty, slapdash, spontaneous, chuck that out in the world, see if it's interesting. It gathered momentum. Ah, this has got some potential. And then the, uh, then the perfectionist part comes. Um, so, so what does that look like? You would, would you release chapters or, or just like tweet about different ideas? Yeah, so increasingly I've started to really enjoy using social media as a way to ask questions. Um, years ago I walked across India and I wrote a book about India and I self-published it because I wanted to do the walk, write the book, edit the book, publish the book, proofread the book myself. So no one saw a word of the book till it, hit, till it was online. Therefore, if it was good, that was down to me. If it was rubbish, that was down to me. And I really enjoyed that project. Now I look back at that book and think, 
man, this would have been better with an editor involved. (laughs) So these days I really, and the best editing I know is to ask experts, which in my case is the audience. So now I'm always asking Twitter polls or ask people to fill in Google forms. Like, oh, what, I'm going to write a book about cheese. What's your three favorite cheeses? And they go, oh, we don't like cheese. We like sausages. They go, oh, okay, that's the direction I want to go. So I ask a lot of Google, uh, Google forms, Twitter polls, just asking people's opinions because that's so helpful. But I also think the audience quite enjoys it. So recently I've been trying to get people to, I've been trying to choose what colour book cover I should do. And I put up an iteration of it and I got hundreds of comments. And then I go away and change it and put it up again. And I think people were really quite enjoying that process of feeling that they're part of it and also seeing behind the scenes of a creative process. I think involving the audience is so important because it's like like when the book came out, and it, when they then see that cover that they picked on that thing, they'll be like, cool, I'm, they're more like... Or the one to, they didn't pick. Yeah, and they're like, fuck <laughs> by that Yeah, book. exactly. <laughs> yes, yeah. I also have really come to appreciate whenever I mess up, whenever I do something really bad, I tell the world. And I found that's a really good way of um, defusing your inner self-loathing or vulnerabilities so amazon reviews is an interesting one for me because i write books so that's very and reviews are so important for books so i put a new book out get a load of five star reviews and i'm thinking yeah i'm a legend this is great and then someone comes in with a one star review saying this book's rubbish the author's a massive narcissist and that you have two choices then if you've been believing all the five star people then you have to believe this one star guy as well Um, or if you just dismiss him as like, yeah, he doesn't know anything, then you have to dismiss the five-star ones as well. So I've taken to embracing one-star reviews and sharing them publicly and widely. When people say that I'm a moron and my book's rubbish, I put that out in the world and have a chuckle about it. And what sort of uh, responses do you get from your audience? It's exactly the same thing as playing the violin in public. It's if you are willing to express your weakness and express your vulnerabilities, then they are no longer weaknesses or vulnerabilities. They become your strengths. Um, I earned 120 euros in Spain from playing the violin. You can listen to the best violinist in the world for free on the internet. There's no need to pay me for the violin. So why were people giving me money? They were giving me money because they saw someone who was clearly bad, but who was just giving it a shot. I was just standing there, and I really felt this quite visceral at times of me just standing there in Spain saying, here I am, this is me, this is all of me, and this is my best shot. I know it's terrible, but I'm trying really, really hard, and this is all I can do. And I'm pretty sure that was why most people chucked a coin at me. I'm currently... um researching an artist called Amanda Palmer. Um, the she, Art of Asking. Well, my favourite book. It's a I, great book. I, I just love her more than anyone mm. on the planet. I am so, like, I can't believe we're interviewing her. She's, like, the best. You asked me earlier about how to do a good talk. Well, her, she has her TED talk she did, which really launched her, she spent months making that talk. And I was amazed because I'd done a lot of talk. I... I consider myself a speaker as my job. I take it seriously. I was like, whoa, I normally, sp- I think I'm doing well if I put half a day's work into a talk. We've, we've done them on the train before yeah. on the way to an oh, event. Yeah, <laughs> yeah very regularly. Yeah. And, and that is still a step up from just repeating the thing you did last time, the time before and the time before, which there's plenty of times when that's what you do in life. Yeah. So I did a talk last summer for an event called the Do Lectures, uh, which is a, it's kind of like 
TEDx talks, but in a place in where, and actually the, the website of that has got brilliant talks to listen to. So I was really honored to be there and I really wanted to do a good talk. So I spent two weeks working full time on my talk for that, um, thanks to reading Amanda Palmer's. And it worked. It was a much better talk than I've done other times because I put in the effort for it. Yeah. Yeah. She's she's incredible. And one of the things she talks about in the book is being a street performer. Um, and just that the, the whole act of the reason that people like because I mean, she wasn't even playing an instrument, but it was people were exchanging their money for for a feeling that they got from her. Um, and 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 I suppose that leads me on to yeah, and the and the whole and the act of just of just seeing each other. Mm. And I suppose you you being up there, being incredibly vulnerable, playing the violin, it's you were seen by these yeah. people, and that that coin is an acknowledgement of like, yeah, I, I see you. Yes, yeah. yeah. Her book is a really good thing for anyone who's looking to start trying to grow audiences, isn't it? Of how to what, what you're giving to get something in return is really yeah. good. And then the other thing, which I think is probably the most useful thing I ever read about growing audiences is the online essay called A Thousand True Fans. Have you read that? Kevin Kelly, yeah. Yeah, which I read every few years. And the essence of it is that you don't, you're not trying to be, so in my world, I'm not trying to be Bear Grylls. I'm trying to make a living out of adventure. And in order to do that, I need to find, how much do I need a year? 30,000 pounds I need a year. So I need to find a thousand people who will give me 30 pounds. And suddenly you think, that's doable. Yeah. yeah, That's a book and a talk and a T-shirt. And how do you get a thousand people? Well, you get one person to tell 10 people and you get them to tell 10 people and you get them to tell 10 people and you've done it and you have a career. And that suddenly starts to seem possible. And the way you get the one person to tell the 10 people is, as you said earlier, is to do something really good, isn't it? A really good bit of content that people actually think, wow, that's cool, I'll tell 10 people. Yeah. And that's all you'll do. Do something they'll they'll tell ten people, and the rest will take care of itself after a decade. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> On the topic then of learning and pushing yourself and trying new things, how did you find the journey into tech of actually documenting your stories, making YouTube videos and things like that? Because you had no tech background, you just started off as a novice, I'd, I'd imagine. Yeah, I started off with no tech background and as a novice. And then importantly, I also very much started out as a not creative person. So back into school and the boxes you get put into, my A-levels were physics, chemistry and biology. Therefore, I gave up doing anything slightly creative when I was 15. Um, and in my head, I considered myself very much not creative until I was in my late 20s. And I finally thought, I'd quite like to write a book about cycling around the world. So... It's all, so an important part of this is to point out that I cycled around the world a really long time ago. It was 2001 to 2005, I did that trip. And one of the, partly, so in four years, I took 3,000 photos, which if you're into photography, you realize is a ridiculously tiny number of photos. You know, I've, nowadays, I sometimes take 3,000 in a weekend. So 3,000 in four years meant I didn't care about photos. I, I sailed across the Atlantic on that and my camera got smashed on the sailing boat across the Atlantic. So for all of Patagonia, six months, I didn't have a camera. And now I'm like, oh, it pains <laughs> me. But like, oh, I don't care because I'm just enjoying this. And I'm writing about it. I'm writing my diaries. And I started writing website updates. That was before the word blog was invented. I'd write about once a month, I'd find an internet cafe 
Do you remember them? Yeah. Find an internet cafe, and I can I turn a month of my trip and thoughts into an article, and I put it on this website, and that was the way I documented that journey. So that was very low tech, and it was now now looking back, I'm so grateful that I wasn't trying to update Instagram every day, and I was just enjoying being in Kyrgyzstan. I'm so grateful for that. So, but when I got home and I started trying to make this my job, first of all, I wanted to write a book. So I had to get myself into the mindset thing, right, I can, I've read a lot of books, therefore maybe I can write one. So I started doing that. And then when I started trying to give better talks and started wanting to be paid, I knew I needed to get better photographs. So I did a night school course, a 10-week night school course in London on how to take better photos and where better place to practice photography than India. So I thought, I'll go do a trip that'll make you know if you i'll go and walk across india and take thousands and thousands of photos and learn to take nice pictures so i started trying to write well and take pictures well and then in about 2008 2009 um, a new camera came out the canon 5d mark ii which is the basically the first of these sort of small cameras like you guys have got that can take beautiful footage and insanely beautiful footage like Hollywood style footage in a small camera and I saw that and that was a light bulb moment of me thinking this I need to get onto this game I'd never filmed anything in my life I didn't really watch tv I don't really watch films I still don't which is stupid but I just saw imagine what a cool film of an adventure you could get with that so I bought this camera it was 1,600 pounds uh, in fact, I can still remember that price 10 years later shows yeah. me what a ridiculous amount of money that was. I mean, it was just terrifying money for me for something I'd never used in my life. And I just thought, I'm going to try and be ahead of the game on this in terms of filming adventures nicely. So I then just spent years Googling how to do this, how to edit this, how to edit this. Um, and that's evolved ever since. I'm now, and I, the, the, so, and then, so I guess I've gradually started to feel that I am creative. And then in um, 2012, I walked across the empty quarter desert, so a thousand miles from Oman to Dubai, pulling a big cart with 350 kilograms of food and water in it. <laughs> it was a ridiculous trip. It was a wonderful trip. But the relevance to this answer is that that was the first journey I ever did when the story was more important than the mission. It was the first thing I did when I thought... My aim here is to make a really nice film. Hopefully we'll walk all the way to Dubai, but the main thing is to make the film. So that was a change in my mindset of why I was going on adventures. And I don't think it made it worse or better, but it very much changed it. And now as adventures become my job, the thinking of how can I make an interesting story is very much integral to how can I come up with an adventure that's challenging and rewarding for myself as well. And the, the creative side of adventure, so tell, whether I'm telling a story through writing a book, the bike trip, through photography, uh, India, through film, the empty quarter desert, or a mixture of things has become really important to me. And I like, I like mixing that up. And I like being a beginner. I like trying new media that I'm not good at. So this summer, I decided to cycle around Yorkshire for a month. I wanted to compare how cycling around the world felt to cycling around somewhere deliberately small. And I decided on that trip that I would record a podcast, primarily just because I wanted a creative angle to the journey that was something I'd never done before, so to get a very different experience of the adventure. Sorry, that was an incredibly long answer. 
That was wonderful. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and what's the name of the podcast? The podcast is called Living Adventurously. And so, number one in the iTunes business chart. Excellent. Um, so yeah, so check that one out. Um, so in hindsight, then, would you say that um, every person is or has the capacity to be creative? Yeah, completely. I mean, if you enjoy consuming, that stupid word, if you enjoy consuming creative things, if you um, have on your Instagram feed pretty stuff, if you like, if you see some graffiti on the wall and think, oh, that's quite cool. Um, if you enjoy listening to music or reading books, then you have an aesthetic understanding of what you like. And therefore, you are an expert at what you like. And the challenge is just figuring out via Google and repetition how to do that yourself. So the way I learned to take photography was by the website Flickr, which is like a photo storing website. But what's great about it is that every picture that's up it tells you the techie details like the shutter speed and the aperture and the ISO. And they're the only three things you need to know to take good pictures. Like, and from Flickr, I learned how to take those pictures of red blurry street light, car lights or water splashes. I look on Flickr, figure that out, get your camera, copy and think, wow, and repeat for 10 years. And then you start, then you're getting somewhere. I guess you must have empathy though, for people who don't think that they are creative just because you, you suffered for that for so long yeah and yeah and loads of people don't think they're creative and I think for 90% of those people they don't care they're like I'm, I'm not I like looking at pretty stuff but I'm not creative and they just get on with life so that's fine I um, think that's yeah I think that's true I suppose for me when we were thinking about the why and the mission of this podcast we we wondered whether we should take on the the duty of sort of trying to unlock every single person and making them realize that every single person is creative and then I think we realized this is for people who already do feel like there's something there. Um, and I'd rather sing to the choir kind of, it, what's the, what's the phrase? Your, yeah, it is yeah, your preaching to the, yeah, I'd rather preach or... to the choir, um, of people that believe that they could be creative at least yeah. rather than trying to convince someone who, because it's like you said, they, they don't care. Yeah. Well, you it's a shame to, really. You have to choose your niche, don't you? You can't try and be everything yeah. to all people, but yeah, loads of people have zero interest in creativity, and that's fine. There, we need you know we need someone to run the country, yeah. <laughs> or, so I, or I don't know, or be a doctor or something. That's it's not. But I think for people who have this, the probably the relevant here is for people who have a slight inkling, thinking, "Oh, I'd like to be creative, but I'm not." That I guess that's, that's the yeah, that's your, yeah. perhaps your niche, and that was. I've gone through that whole phase of not even thinking I was creative in any way. Um, not doing anything artistic at all, ever. And also probably thinking it was all a bit wimpish to do anything like creative stuff. Um, to then gradually thinking, this is where I want to be. And then pouring myself into Googling how to go about trying to do some of it. But I think a big part of it in your head is a shift of mindset of thinking, yeah, I am now. So I still feel awkward. Like I now feel awkward saying that I'm a photographer or I'm a filmmaker or even I'm an author. I've been writing books. I've written 13 books, but I still never say <laughs> I'm an author because in my head, I just think that I'm not that sort of person. Is that because you're comparing yourself to authors? No, it's because I'm comparing myself to just my earlier me. You know, the, the boxes you get put in yeah. as a young person. I, I'm not an athlete because I wasn't in the rugby team I'm not a right I'm not an artist because I wasn't just smoking behind the bike sheds with all the cool kids <laughs> yeah. I was busy in the physics lab doing stuff so that's it isn't it and how 
how frightening to me really that had you not found your career that you found you never would have discovered your creativity yeah I mean I would if I hadn't done this I'd be well I'd be probably be a, I would hope be a head teacher by now and hopefully I'd be a good one but it'd be a very different direction in life so but I feel like I'm sort of teaching people these days but in just a, quite a different way so I've started I write kids books now and I love um, you know, World Book Day, which is in March, you get on, on Twitter loads of kids yeah. dressing up as the Gruffalo, and yeah. some. And every year now, there's some kids who dress up as the boy who bite the world. My book, and I think, wow, that is cool. That's teaching in a, a different way. Yeah, that's amazing, and I suppose it gives you. It's a legacy, isn't it? You can leave. It's something that you can leave. It's something you can be really well known for. Um, well, one, my big ambition in life is to write a really good book. That's my lasting mission i think my books are getting better but i yeah that's my big that's my big ambition so a really good book one day your new book's just come out hasn't it it has yeah what's it called it's called the doorstep mile and what's that about this is about trying to live a little bit more adventurously every day so this is me stepping away from traditional travel writing or how to go camping type of stuff to just try to be a bit broader and say or ask the question would you like to live more adventurously however you define that so in your creative or business or home or with your family and if the answer is yes well first if the answer is no then don't bother reading the book but if the answer is yes <laughs> then if you would like to be more adventurous in your life then what's stopping you and you have to look at what's stopping you and then figure out the the, the title the doorstep mile comes from a norwegian phrase which Miller, which is the longest mile of any journey, is stepping out of your front door and beginning. And when I learned that phrase, it was a real light bulb moment for me because I've always found it really hard to start expeditions. And I've always beaten myself up about how much I fret and fuss and worry around just getting on with stuff. But real, this phrase just summed it up for me, that notion of starting it so hard. And once you're off, then the big things can follow. So trying to find some really, 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 really small adventurous thing to do. It's amazing how it's just the starting which is always the hardest. Mm. Like we've done a lot of talks where we do like Q&A at the end and so many times people's biggest problem is the fact that they have, they're too scared to start. It's like they've, or they've got all these big outlandish ideas of oh, once this has happened, then I'll start. Mm. And I remember we did a, um, uh, like a little mini question episode on waking up early. And like what I say is, all you have to do to get up early is to just get your feet on the ground. Don't think about, oh, I've got to get up, do this, do this, do this. Just get your feet on the ground. If you can do that, then the rest of it will just follow. And I think with anything, it's like if you're going to go to the gym and you're like, okay, well, if I, I'm only going to go there for five minutes. If I can go there for five minutes, then that's me achieve my goal. Or today I'm going to write a book and I'm going to do, I'm just going to sit down for 10 minutes and just write something. Once you get started, then it really kicks you in. You're like, you've started then. So, oh, well, I'm here. So I'll just carry on. But it's just that getting over that threshold, isn't it? Yeah, I don't think you need to read my book. You've just summarized it perfectly. <laughs> but yeah, that's basically exactly what the book's about. Take Step out the front door. If you want to go for, if you can't be bothered to go for a run, sometimes I have a rule to myself, which when I can't be bothered to go for a run, I think, okay, that's fine. You don't have to go for a run today. You can sit on the sofa and just drink 10 beers and eat crisps. That's fine. That sounds great. All you'll do before that though, is just put on your running kit yeah. and your trainers and go outside the front door and close the door behind you. Once you've done that, then you can come back in and drink the beer. But of course you don't. You're like, oh God, well, go do the run. 
as well. That's great. Yeah. Um, I suppose there is almost um, like a perceived elitism to adventuring. I mean, I think we've debunked that through our chat of, I mean, if you want to make it well, I mean, you can survive on very, very little, 120 euros for a month, uh, and you can you can get by. Um, but I suppose part of your mission is to debunk that you have to be a person of privilege to be able to have an adventure. Um, so how could how can people just have adventures that are not necessarily trekking around the world? <laughs> so I've spent years now trying to break down the barriers to entry for adventure, the real ones, and then importantly also the perceived ones. If people like me don't do stuff like this kind of mm. thing. So what I noticed from cycling around the world or rowing the ocean um, or being up in the Arctic in Greenland is that the way those things make me feel and the reasons I'm doing it and the benefits for it are the same in all of those environments. And mostly then, the benefits for adventure in your head. Adventure is really an attitude of just the way it makes you feel and the, the, all that sort of kind of in, understood good stuff from adventures. But if it's in your head, you should be able to do it anywhere. So I decided to test this theory by doing the most boring adventure in the world, which was uh, walking a lap of the M25. <laughs> so I set out to, you know, if you can have an adventure there, you can have an adventure anywhere. And what I noticed walking around the M25, which is a ridiculous thing to do, was how wonderful it was and how identical it was to cycling around the world. It was a, a physical challenge, which I like. isn't necessary for everyone, but I like that. Um, it took me places I'd never been before. I met interesting, kind people, just like you do in Pakistan or Zimbabwe. Um, I found pockets of beauty and wilderness between the boring, ugly bits and the service stations. And that really showed me that, firstly, wilderness is more around us than we often think. Um, also that it's much nearer to towns than we think and that you don't need to go to the ends of the world to have an adventure. You don't need to spend a lot of money and that they can be increasingly cheap, simple and local. Um, I call those micro-adventures. I've been banging on about micro-adventures for years. Um, and what I, you know, whenever people on social media say, no but, no but, like, I can't do this because I listen to what their reason is and then I try and go and do some adventure that is compatible with, the, with that. So what's, what's the most common thing that people be like, no, but... A time or money. Time, I think there's a time period of your life when you don't have much money, then there's a period of your life when you don't have much time. So they're generally the two big ones. And I, I, in my Doorstep Mar book, I lump those as the practical hurdles. Lack of time, a lack of money. If... And, an interesting exercise is if you say, um, I, I don't have enough money to cycle to France or I don't have the time to um, go to the beach this weekend, is to swap the word can't for choose not to. Just try saying that. So you're saying, I choose not to spend my money on cycling to France or I choose not to go spend my time by going to the beach this weekend. And that, I think, really makes you realise in your head, oh, I could do this if I wanted to. Or valid sometimes you think no that's not true i actually can't afford to cycle to france and then fair enough you just have to think of another plan so deciding whether it's a choice or not is an important thing i think they're the practical barriers and then there's all the internal stuff the imposter syndrome the people like me don't do stuff like this uh, women can't do it or i'm not privileged enough all these sorts of things that more often than not is just 
baggage we build up in our heads that stop ourselves from getting to the start line. So I think often you just need, and creative people I think often just need an invitation to the party. You need to say, listen, this is my invitation. If you want to be an artist, I invite you. Bring paper and some pens and colouring pens and begin. You're invited. Or if you're doing it but you're not doing very well, and you think, then what you need then is permission to continue. You're doing your art. It's maybe a bit rubbish, but I give you permission to continue with that rubbish art. And if you continue it for long enough, it'll get good. And I think once you've solved the practical problems and this sort of voice shouting yourself in the head, then the only thing that's left after that is your own wimpish patheticness <laughs> and I finished the book with a, a a plea for people to visit a website called deathclock.com which calculates for you the date of your death and then you can put that into your google calendar along with your monthly tree climb and if you need any extra incentive to pull your finger out and actually get on with stuff then having the ultimate deadline in the calendar is quite a good one mine's not very far away it's September the 9th 2050 according to this website which actually isn't very long ago. What kind of things do you fill in on this website that would judge uh, that? D- date of birth, your gender, height, weight, and whether you smoke and drink. Do you smoke and drink really heavily? Like what? Uh, no, I'm <laughs> just pretty old. <laughs> no, it's uh, yeah, that's that's whatever. I'm 42 now, so I guess I'm more than halfway. So I've got a lot to get on with. I really like the way you use your calendar as a positive thing. I think more people should do that. Everyone should find something that they can add in there that once a week, once a month pops up and forces them to do something that is fun. Because, yeah, most of calendars are just using your time for work or something that isn't particularly enjoyable. It's like the tasks you have to get done because you have to. I think the best way to get spontaneous, fun stuff done in life is by scheduling it into your diary. If you want to be an artist but you don't have much time then just schedule in 30 minutes on Wednesday lunchtime Picasso in 30 minutes could draw something pretty good so do something 30 minutes on Wednesday lunchtime stick on Instagram make that your thing Wednesday lunchtime hashtag do that every week by the end of the year you've got 50 drawings you should be getting there but you have to schedule these things in and I think perhaps there's some sort of inner train spotter in me but I like the notion of repetition of things so so I did a year of micro adventure, which was telling people once a month, go sleep on a hill, go sleep on a hill once a month, once a month, build it into a habit. Or the seasons are a good one. The, the summer solstice, the winter solstice, the two equinoxes, that's four times a year to go do something. Mm-hmm. And if you think you don't have time to go climb a hill four times a year, then you really need to go climb a hill four times a year if you don't yeah. have the time to do that four times. And I think realizing that everyone has exactly the same amount of time as well. So if you say you don't have it... You choose. It's a choice. I choose. Mm. Yeah, that's fair. Debbie Millman, her quote was, uh, um, busy is a choice. Busy is a decision. Busy is a decision, yeah. Yeah, and looking at the difference between whether the things you do is important or urgent, I found that a really... took me a long time to work out the difference between those two words. Is this important or is it urgent? I'm trying to get rid of the urgent stuff, the stuff that shouts at you, do this, do this, to actually carve out a bit of time to begin doing the important things. It's quite an important differentiation, I think. Having travelled all over the world, multiple times, different countries, what have you learnt most about people? The thing I've learnt most is that 
the world is a good place, full of good, kind, normal people. And yeah, don't believe what you see on the TV. The world is a good place. That is my overarching lesson from cycling around the world. Wonderful. Uh, where can people find you online? Oh, I've spent far too much time making myself found online. So if you type <laughs> in Alistair Humphreys um, into whatever you're looking for, I'll probably be there. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you get any value from these episodes, it would mean the world to us if you could share the podcast with someone who needs it. You can always reach out to us on Instagram at rebelscreate or head over to creativerebels.co. And remember, always be creating. See ya.